uh, Genesis chapter 16 as we uh, continue in our series in the book of Genesis. I'll only read the first uh, six verses rather than uh, ask you to stand for the whole chapter. It is our practice to stand whenever we read God's Word. Uh, As we've said before, you stand when a bride enters the room. Uh, You stand for the President of the United States. Uh, How much more should we stand when uh, God's Word, when God Himself enters the room as you will uh, by His Word? So let's, let's stand together. Genesis 16, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Uh, Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, it uh, it was your function, it was your uh, job, your, your aim within the Godhead to inspire Moses to write these words, to inspire these words themselves. It has been your function to preserve them and and keep them for uh, some 4,000 years now. And Father, we pray that you would grant us the Spirit now to teach us, to grow us, to change us, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes children like to help. Sometimes your children want to help cook. They want to help clean. Uh, they want to help rearrange things. Sometimes you're in the middle of doing work, and, and, and they, they, they genuinely want to help. But they have small hands, they don't really fully understand their strength. They don't know how to control, you know, I don't know, cracking eggs or, or putting this on that or putting that down. And, and so sometimes you're tempted just to, you're almost standing there the whole time with your arms kind of like you're just ready to reach out and, and, and take it. And in the back of your mind is, let me, let me just help you with it. Let me, let me just show you, let me, let me just help you do this the whole time until finally you just you just you get just impatient. You're, you're, I'll even grant you you do it well, perhaps, 
but inside you're just, this is going too slow. This, this, this child, it's so sweet, it's so cute that they want to help, but it's, it's just taking too long. I, I really need to do this myself. I need, to, I need to take this and do it myself. It's one thing to do that with our children. The problem is we do that far too often to God. That, that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Sarah is, is looking at God and going, um, you, you, let me, can I just help you? If I just, I'm just going to take this from you. Let me, just hold, let me just do this. Let me take this and do this. I'll give it back a promise. That's the heart of, of Genesis 16. Sarah invents this problem. You notice in verses 1 and 2, she looks around and, and she sees with her eyes that she is childless. In her culture, in her world, that would be a, a problem. Uh, it's, it's shameful in her culture not to have this you know, large brood of kids following you everywhere you go. She can't go to supper club because everyone's going to talk about their kids and, and she doesn't have any. She can't go uh, to the grocery store when she knows all those other young moms are going to be there because they're going to be there, you know, kids in tow at the grocery store and she's not going to have them there. There's a, a social struggle for her, a, a stigma, if you will, that, that she doesn't have kids, that she doesn't have a, a bunch of kids by this time. Of course, she's 75 years old now and it's looking less and less likely like she will have kids at all. She's convinced, not only am I, am I shamed now, but I'm pretty much going to be this way for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm 75. That's no spring chicken, as they say. Of course, for Sarah, it's, it's compounded by the fact that she, she has this promise. Um, a promise that has been going on for 10 years now, or, or, or more. Uh, but she has... A, a promise. Abram has been promised descendants. Descendants like the stars in the sky. You go outside, you look up, and, and there's bazillions of stars in the sky. And, and I'm supposed to have kids like that. And yet I'm 75 and I have none. Uh, yet I'm 75 and, and 10 years we've lived in the land of Canaan. 10 years or more this promise has been made and yet remains un. Fulfilled. You, you can see her struggle. Now, I said Sarah invents a problem. Maybe you're thinking this doesn't sound like she's invented a problem. This sounds like an actual problem. I mean, this, like, I get it. Like, I totally understand her because this isn't a made up, fabricated problem. She actually doesn't have kids, she objectively is childless. She objectively has the promise of, um, of descendants who are to come uh, from Abram. This doesn't sound like a, an invented problem. It sounds like an actual problem. Why do we say that it's an invented problem? Well, Sarah let her experience explain her doctrine. Sarah lets her Christian experience explain her Christian theology rather than her theology explaining her 
experience. She, she sees her circumstances. Her eyes perceive that she has no children. Her eyes perceive what she thinks um, is a contradiction to what God has promised. It's a contradiction to God's Word. God said we'd have descendants like the stars in the sky, but from what I can tell, He's not doing it. My experience tells me His Word is wrong. My experience tells me His promise is wrong. Sarah's problem isn't that she's barren. It's that she was barren and was convinced she shouldn't be. That God was somehow making a mistake. That that God was wrong. That God was weak. That God was unable to fulfill the promise that He had made at least three or four times now to Abram and over the course of ten or more years. Her childlessness made her question God's promise. That's her problem. She invents this problem of, I don't have kids. The real problem is, her childlessness leads her to question God's Word. In fact, she says as much in verse 2, did she not? Um, She basically says, God's taking entirely too long. We should have kids by now, Abram. What does God know? He's taking entirely too long. I remain childless because He's prevented me from having children. Well, at least she recognized God's sovereignty in that. God's Word should explain our experience rather than our experience explaining God's Word. Or or perhaps to say it another way, to use language of of Scripture. Sarah's walking by sight and not by faith. She's living by sight and not by faith. Sarah invents this problem. And of course, in response to her invented problem, she now has to invent a solution to solve her made-up problem. I do not want ever, ever, to feel the desperation of a woman who would think to solve her problem of childlessness with, honey, I still have no kids. Here's my servant. I mean, I... The desperation that, I mean, that, that's at least what's in, your, in our minds, right? I mean, we think that's the most ridiculous idea anyone's ever thought to come, to come up with. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I still remain childless. You know, honey, I have a, a female servant. Why don't you take her? That's completely foreign to our minds. That's utterly ridiculous to you and to me. And yet, Sarah solves her, creates this solution by saying, hey honey, there's Hagar, my servant. You know, I'm, I'm the sentimental one in my family. 
I'm the one that refuses to throw anything away. I'm not a hoarder, I'm sentimental. Um, everything reminds me of something. That, that reminds me of the time we, that reminds me of the time my, my kid did this. That was, everything reminds me of something. Just the word Hagar, the name Hagar coming out of Sarah's mouth, should have triggered a memory. I mean, like, you can almost picture in her mind, it, 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 there should have been flashbacks of, of terror and horror in her mind at this point. Hagar is an Egyptian servant. How'd she get Hagar? She invariably got her from Pharaoh. The last time they were in Egypt, back at the end of chapter 12, do you remember? They, they went to Egypt. They fled their promised land and went to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And so they went to Egypt. And do you remember what happened? Abram said, hey, honey, here's the deal. Um, uh, I'm afraid for my life, and you know the promise was made to me, so I've got to stay alive. So when we get to Egypt, here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell, we're going to tell everybody, you're my sister. Not that you're my wife. Okay, she was his half-sister. That's technically kind of true. And when Pharaoh's household was dealing with curses and problems and and he finally discovered the real issue and he ran Abram and Sarah out of town. He basically threw gifts at them. Here, go, take, leave. Including female servants. Hagar almost had to be a, a consequence, a result of the last time Abram and Sarah said, God, let me let me just take this from you for just a second. We need to make sure when we get to Egypt that I'm protected. God, let me let me just take this from you for just a second. The sheer mention of the servant Hagar should have been enough to make them remember the last time they tried to help God fulfill his promises and they failed and yet God was faithful. We are um our memories are short when it comes to our failures and His faithfulness. We remember His failures and our faithfulness as though God fails. But we, 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 that's, what we, that's what we remember. That's what we hold on to. There's times when He should have and didn't. But our memories are short when it comes to our failures and His faithfulness. And so Sarah invokes this plan. Here, here's what we're going to do. Um, Here's my servant, Hagar. Um, which culturally was normal. I mean, we can read back ancient Near East. The Code of Hammurabi actually has laws in it about how to handle the children when a wife gives her female servant to her husband. It actually has laws in there about how this goes, how this plays out. This was normal. It was at least normal enough that other ancient cultures had laws on the books about how to deal with this. You and I think it's the most ridiculous idea ever. And yet, there are laws on, in several countries that deal with exactly this issue. This, by the way, I think this has particular 
implications for us in 2018. Just because the culture says it's okay doesn't make it okay. Just because the world around us says, yeah, absolutely. 1973, Roe versus Wade, abortion is legal. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it morally acceptable. Just because the world in which we live says that's okay doesn't actually make it okay. We will take our cues from God's Word, not from the world. And so Sarah hands Abram, her husband, Hagar. I have a, um, y'all know I'm, I'm connected uh, with the JV soccer team, the soccer well, JV and varsity soccer at Athens High as a fellow soccer dad who uh, used to say anytime Athens would score, which didn't happen often enough, quite honestly, but anytime Athens would score, inev- inevitably he would say, one begets another. You can almost hear the hope. Well, I mean, see, there's a little bit of momentum. We figured something out. Uh, watch how quickly a second one follows a, a first goal. One begets another. And every time Athens scored, one begets another. That was never true for goals in Athens soccer. It's almost always true for sin. Think about the number of times you've been forced to sin to cover up for the fact that you sinned. Think of the number of times you've had to lie and cheat and steal to make up for the fact that you lied and cheated and stole. Sin heaps up on top of itself. As soon as we dive into sin, inevitably, we sin more and more to cover up the fact that we've sinned. And that's exactly what happens here in this passage. Sarah's invented uh, problem, the solution she created to solve the problem, meant sin heaped up on top of sin. Let me just... Let me just show you. This, this will be a fun exercise for us, won't it? Let's just, we'll only see seven sins in the first six verses of this passage where sin piled up on top of sin. Notice, first of all, Sarah either doesn't trust God's promise or maybe she's just really eager to bring His promises to fruition. And so she figures out a, a humanly devised way to bring uh, those promises about. She's, she's at best really eager to fulfill God's promise. Now she, she does the wrong thing, and, and part of the point there is we can do the wrong thing for the right reason. I mean, it's entirely possible to say, but I wanted this good thing. Yeah, but what you did was wrong. No one questions Uzzah's motive. The the Ark of the Covenant being transported on a cart pulled by oxen. The ox stumbles. The cart wobbles. The Ark of the Covenant starts to fall off. Nobody says, well, Uzzah, your heart was in the wrong. He he didn't want it to fall off. That, That seems perfectly reasonable to you and me, right? But God's Word said, do not touch the ark. 
And with that, Uzzah was dead. We can do the wrong thing for the right reasons, or presumably right reasons. Sarah may be eager to bring about God's promises, but that's no reason to take matters into your own hands. A second sin piled up on top of another, um, and the wrong thing for the right reason. Sarah is actually willing to encourage her husband to commit adultery. Uh, Okay, well, maybe you'll object. Uh, The seventh commandment hadn't written yet. This is Genesis. Commandments are in Exodus, Jeff. Seventh commandment isn't written yet. Moses is writing Genesis, and that's after Abram, so, you know, technically it wasn't wrong, except that marriage has always been one man, one woman from the beginning of time. We see that even in Genesis 2. She would throw her one flesh partner into an adulterous relationship just so she could say, I have kids. A third and fourth. We'll put them together. Third and fourth sins uh, piled up on top of each other. Sarah, the wife, takes the headship role while Abram, her husband, abdicates his his role as the head of this marriage. Notice, um, she comes to him, hey, Abram, here's this problem, and here's how we're going to solve it. And he says, okay. Whatever you think. If you think that's a good idea, we'll, we'll do that. It's role reversal. He should be leading his family, not the other way around. He should be looking at her going, uh, God's word says otherwise, we're not going to do that. He should be rebuking her at this point. A fifth... Um, Sin, as they, these sins sort of pile up on top of each other. Notice in verse 5, Sarah blames Abraham. May the wrong done to me be on you. Okay, we have verse 2. It was her idea. She came up with it. It was her plan. And she's immediately going, whoa, hold on. You've you got to share the blame in this too, big man. You can't let this all land on me. So she's passing this blame all around, pointing fingers at everyone else who needs to share responsibility. Was that five? Six. Um, notice the way Sarah treats Hagar. Christians should never treat their fellow image bearers like that. We should never mistreat another human being simply because we're jealous. That seems to be the the case here. We should seek the good of others, not their mistreatment. Seventh, lastly, Abram failed to defend the defenseless. Hagar is a servant. Did, did they ever say, hey, Hagar, what do you think about this idea? Did Sarah go to Hagar and say, hey, look, I think I'm going to approach Abram with this. What do you think? Does this sound good to you? She's treated like a, a tool, like a pawn, like a, an instrument. She's, she's mistreated throughout. And Abram had multiple opportunities 
from the start, and then even at the end when Sarah's complaining because, okay, probably, this could have been eight, probably Hagar is, is causing problems for Sarah. Abram could very easily have, have, have corrected the whole situation. Instead, he abdicates again and says, look, you do what you think is right. I'll just stay out of it. She's yours. Do what you want. He could have defended the defenseless. And he failed to do so. Sin piled up on top of sin because Sarah invented a problem and then invented a solution to solve her made-up problem. But the passage doesn't end there. Sarah invents, God intervenes. Hagar runs away. She's been mistreated. She runs into the wilderness. She's she's fleeing, we're told, at the end of verse 6. She fled. Hagar fled from Sarah because of the way she was being treated. She's in the wilderness. She's on her way back to Egypt. That's exactly where you would expect her to go. And yet, there in the wilderness, something extraordinary happens. The angel of the Lord found her. Notice she didn't find him. God pursued her. The angel of the Lord found her. There's no indication that she was looking for him. There's no indication at all that she went and found God. God's always the pursuer in Scripture. She's running away from God's covenant people. And yet the angel of the Lord finds her there. There in the wilderness. But who's the angel of the Lord? What exactly does that mean? We could look at Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, uh, the burning bush. Maybe you don't know that's in Exodus 3, but you know what that is. You're familiar with that. And, and God's there in uh, the burning bush. We're told in Exodus 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then in verse 6 of Exodus 3, God is speaking. There's this equation in Scripture between the angel of the Lord and God Himself. We see it again in Judges 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and as He spoke, He speaks to the people and says, I brought you out of Egypt. The angel of the Lord takes credit for that which God has done. There's only one explanation for that. The angel of the Lord must be some form of the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. It must be some form of God Himself. The angel of the Lord speaks in the first person when speaking of acts and and works that God has done. And so therefore, He must be God Himself. He comes in this this pre-incarnate form, second person of the Trinity. And notice that Hagar gets instruction and she gets prophecy. Notice she's told in verse 9, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. She's sent back to Sarah. 
I, that had to be some, there had to be some amount of pain at this point. Hearing that must have been somewhat difficult for her. But God would send her back to God's covenant people. Abram and Sarah, that's, that's God's covenant people. He would send Hagar back there. There she can find comfort. There she can find hope. There she finds salvation, deliverance, and care, and restoration. But she's also told she's going to have a son. In fact, she's told she's going to have a multitude of sons. Verse 10 so will her offspring be that it cannot be numbered for multitude. Abram gets that promise. And now Hagar gets the same promise. She'll name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. Could you imagine being Abram? Hagar returns, gives birth to her son. They name him Ishmael. Every time God, I mean, Abram's out in the yard doing yard work and he calls his son to help. Hey, Ishmael! He's reminded God hears. God heard Hagar. Had Sarah called out, God would have heard her. Reminded. Every time he calls his son, reminded. Oh, that's right. God hears his people and I chose not to cry out to him. Every single time. And notice, he's going to be at odds with his kinsmen. He will dwell, verse 12, over against all his kinsmen. The relationship is not going to be a good one. He's going to live like a, a, a hippie, Bedouin, Volkswagen, Vanagon, wandering kind of guy. A wild donkey, wild horse of a man. Free-spirited at odds with those around him. Sarah invented. God intervened. But notice the last two verses. Where are we when the chapter ends? We're right back where it started. Sarah's name is nowhere to be found in those last two verses. She still doesn't have a child. Hagar has a son. Abram has a son. Sarah is still exactly where she was when the chapter started. She's still childless. She has headaches and heartache, marital strife, household contentiousness. She doesn't have a son. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, uh, you see here that very clearly the principle of, of sowing and reaping. Hagar is a consequence of sin. That should have been enough right there. The very mention of her name should have said, we go no further with this, Sarah. Hagar is a consequence of sin. Years after uh, throwing his wife to an Egyptian, Sarah is now throwing her husband to another Egyptian. The repetition of sin. They're, they're dealing with this, this sin was committed eight, nine, ten years ago, and, and in Egypt, and now they have Hagar, and now they're dealing with the consequences of that. 
for that matter, God's people, the descendants of Isaac, have, ever since Genesis 16, have been dealing 4,000 years the effects of this sin are plainly evident every time you watch the news at night. We, the United States, has lost military men because there's conflict, because of Hagar and Sarah. We've lost our own soldiers because of this very sin. The next time you think your sin won't affect anybody, Remember this. This sin committed 4,000 years ago in a completely another part of the world has affected our own military. Sin has consequences. Sex outside of marriage, that's just between two consenting adults. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't affect anyone else. Tell that to the U.S. soldiers that have died in Iraq over the Middle East in the last 10 or 15 years. You can't escape the consequences of sin. A second application. You need to understand, Abram and Sarah are believers. These are Christians we're talking about. This is after Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. They're Christians. We're not talking about pagans. We're talking about fellow believers, brothers and sisters who will be with us in heaven. Don't think that as Christians we're impervious to this kind of, of temptation and sin. We would never do anything as bad as that because, well, because I'm a Christian, because I would never do that. Well, here you are. They are your brothers and sisters. A third application, it, it probably is worth making a comment about marriage and divorce. Yes, there are biblical grounds for divorce, Grounds and requirement are not the same thing. You may have grounds for divorce, but that doesn't mean you should. That doesn't mean you ought to. That doesn't mean you, you have to. Because Abram and Sarah have each given their partner to someone else, like given their partner to someone else, and yet Peter is going to set this marriage up as a model marriage. In 1 Peter 3, he calls Sarah a model wife. In other words, grounds for divorce doesn't mean a mandate for divorce. The gospel brings hope. Even in a, as deep and, and disdainful sin like we read here in Genesis 16, this marriage is set up for us as a model She's set up as a model wife. There's redemption. There's healing. There's restoration in the gospel. Lastly, God's plans are brought about by God's means. God's design is accomplished in God's ways. That means we trust Him to do what He will with with His means of grace in this world. This has implications for us at Grace Covenant. Uh, we're not given to, to gimmicks and trickery and, and bait and switch kinds of stuff here at Grace Covenant. God says He uses His Word, sacraments, 
prayer, fellowship. Those are the means of grace. That's what he uses to, to reach and equip uh, his people. And so those are the means that we will use. They may not be the fastest. They may not be the showiest. They may not be the coolest. But they're His. We won't go with cool, latest, new, and flashy. We'll go with His. And trust Him to work His way through His means in His timing. May He grant us the grace to do just that. Let's pray together.